all right? Hey, if, uh, if you're like me and my wife, Sarah, uh, there's been a few times, it's limited, where there's like a television show that we both like watching. I say that because most of the time, Sarah's interest is like HGTV, and mine's pretty much anything else, all right? Uh, but there was a show on her beloved channel that came on that we both enjoyed watching. Many of you probably watched it as well, Fixer Upper. And we were bummed to see that show come to an end. Uh, we loved watching it. I loved watching it for particularly one reason. Um, Chip, that guy, you've seen the show, you know him. The dude jumps through drywall <laughs> because it's there. And uh, he loves to destroy things. I, we just would get along, I really think. Uh, he and I would get along. Um, and then we'd also like to watch it because uh, of their connection as a married couple, as parents, they're Christians. It's really a fun show. But one of the things that's always stood out to me uh, about the show is if you've watched it, they get these broke down houses and this couple comes in and they completely redo the home and then they give it to, they sell it to a family uh, that will come in. And the night before the reveal, Joanna tells Chip to take the kids and leave. And the cameras don't always record this part. They kind of give you a glimpse, but she'll be in the home by herself that night before. And it's during that night that she will really pause because it's been kind of fast-paced going, designing the house, getting ready, got to get it, you got deadlines and everything. But in that night before, she'll pause to consider the family that's about to move in. And she very carefully considers them. She considers what the kids would like, what the adults would like, what's meaningful to the family. She puts the last touches on it. She's really focused enough to consider what was important. And why that really has always stood out to me is probably because I'm not very good at it. I'm the kind of person that likes to get to doing things. I like to move and go. So I don't pause well. I don't slow down enough to consider uh, the details of life. And so sometimes I get worked up trying to get to a conclusion. And I can do the same thing. If, if you remember, I said this a few weeks ago, that if you, if you study the life of Jesus, you notice that Jesus was busy. He had a lot going on. He would go from one thing to the next. He was traveling. You'd notice that he fell asleep on a boat because he needed a nap. He's teaching people and healing people and going places. And yet, as busy as he was, he was never hurried. He was never in a hurry. Jesus always seemed to be present in the moment, always seemed to understand the people that he was ministering to, relate to the people that he was healing or teaching, and really focus on them. And so when he gets to teaching people how to do the same thing, oftentimes I find myself struggling with it because I try hard to pay attention and usually end up just getting attention deficit disorder with the details. I just have to move on. Like I can't focus all the time. Maybe you're wired like that. I've learned in my life, as it turns out, it is actually quite possible to see but not really see, and to hear but not really hear, on the details of life. And so Jesus gets to this Sermon on the Mount, if you've studied the Gospels, the story of Jesus, and he gets to this time where he begins to teach on something many of us can relate to, many of us enjoy this teaching found in Matthew chapter 6, where he teaches, hey, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And then we're like, all right, here it comes, and we're getting ready. And most of us want to get to the end of that passage because it tells us, do not worry. God's going to provide. And now here's what's fascinating about that. I do think that that is the thrust of the passage, but there is more than one command in that passage. See, Jesus commands us not to worry, not to have anxiety, but he has another command in the passage. Earlier on in the passage, he actually says, consider the lilies. That is a direct command in the text. When you translate it out, it is not an optional thing. It's not, uh, hey, consider doing this. This might also help. It is a command 
stop and consider the lilies. And I got to thinking this past week, what if it is considering the lilies that's the work of the passage? What if that is the solution to the anxiety and the worry that we experience in life? What if we were to slow down enough to truly think about the bigger impact that the smaller details have? Like, what if we did, in our lives, consider the lilies? See, this is a theme in the book of Hebrews. This word consider will pop up all the time. It's as if it's saying, hey, there's a big picture to what's going on in the world. It's what we would call meta-narrative. Everybody say meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. It's the big story of what God is doing in the book of Hebrews is wonderful at pointing this big story out. But every once in a while it says, hey, while you're considering the big story, don't forget this small detail. Consider this. Consider this. Think about this. Consider this. And so one of the themes that we should probably pay attention to is when the author of Hebrews asks us to slow down just for a moment to consider something important as it fits into the big picture of what God's doing. And that's what's going to happen in Hebrews chapter 3. If you have a Bible, we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. And here's what it says. Therefore, holy brothers, now you can translate that from the ESV, which is the journal that we have. If you need one, you can buy one at the Welcome Center and take notes in it and stuff. But if, if you uh, translate that word out, it can be translated brothers and sisters. So, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Okay, we're going to dissect this as we go, because this is jam-packed with depth. So if you are a note-taker, today is your day, okay? The, the way that he breaks this, just this first part of verse 1 down, he identifies them as brothers and sisters. And what's the word therefore? What, what, what do we have to ask when we see the word therefore? What's it there for? So the previous argument that the author just got done making was that we are united to one another and to Jesus because of what Jesus did. So we take on what we would call sonship, right? And so now we are sons and daughters of the king because you would say your brother Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. So now we are also sons and daughters like Jesus is the son because of what Jesus did. This is the argument he makes at the end of chapter 2. So now he identifies them and he calls them brothers and sisters. Now, again, it's easy to skip over this and just keep moving, but let's consider the lilies, okay? The way that New Testament authors describe the church, the words that they use to describe the church often reveal an entire theology about the church, okay? So just key words that they use. So when he uses brothers and sisters, when he calls us brothers and sisters, what he is saying is we are united to one another. And whatever God is doing among us, he is doing among us collectively together. That means that when you come to church, if it were reduced to simply sitting in a seat and watching somebody perform, you would not feel the connectedness to your brothers and your sisters that you should feel around the room. It'd be really weird if I said, get up and move around and call everybody brothers. I'm not going to do that. It's not that weird. We're not going to go off the deep end with it. But for you to understand that because of Jesus, you are related. I say this to my I've, I've had the joy of baptizing two of my kids into Christ. All right, my son Caleb and my daughter Abby. The moment of my life, I get choked up just thinking about it. I, ah, it's like the joy of life. And with both of them, I got to get down on their level. I looked them right in the eyes, and I say the same thing. And I'm going to say the same thing. Uh, if, Lord willing, I get to, to do the same with my other two children. I said, hey, you've called me daddy for a long time, and you're always going to be able to call me daddy. That's all, you're always allowed to call me daddy. I'll always be your dad. But because of what Jesus has done for us, now we're brother and sister. Like now we are, we are so connected because of Jesus and what he's done and what, what you're now accepting that he has done for you. 
and then I get to baptize them. You see, what he's saying here is we are connected in a way that the rest of the world cannot have apart from Jesus. So we have this connection. Then he identifies it as not just being connected like that, but like we're holy. You can underline or circle the word holy. That's a really powerful, important word to this audience because holy means to be set aside, to be set apart. And so God is set apart. He is holy from us because of our sin. Okay? And because of Jesus, now we can be connected to him again. So because of Jesus, we're made holy. It's what Jesus did for you. You are a holy. You're what we call a holy priesthood in many passages. A connectedness because of Jesus. Why holy is important for this audience is if you remember that uh, the book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian audience. So they have a very deep Jewish background. They were very connected to the scriptures. And you guys know in your Old Testament, if, if you're familiar with that, maybe you did the Bible in a year, and most of us, Genesis, Exodus, let's go to Luke, not Leviticus, right? Because uh, Leviticus is like a bunch of laws and regulations, and you read through it, and you're just like, man, well, all those laws and regulations were what God gave to the people, and they had to do these things, and when they realized they couldn't do them, they had to offer what we call sacrifice for their holiness, okay? For their holiness, they had to offer a sacrifice. And so an animal's blood would be shed and, and sprinkled in the temple and the Holy of Holies for the sins of the people, and it would be their connection to the holiness of God. Okay? And so a sacrifice had to be made. This is what made them holy. So the author is saying, you're connected to one another as brothers and sisters. Your holiness, you need to understand, this is not a human achievement. From, from the very beginning, it had to be based on a sacrifice. And now through Christ, it's based on his sacrifice. You cannot work hard. You cannot try better and become holy. We cannot transform ourselves by doing more. So the author is not saying holy brothers and sisters. He's not, what he's, not, he's not congratulating them for achieving holiness. He's reminding them of where their holiness came, where their connectedness to one another comes from. It comes from Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. While it's true we are made brothers in holiness because of Jesus, we are only made holy in brotherhood, meaning our holiness is um, improved upon. Like we, we, we appreciate Jesus more the more connected we get to one another. And you've found that to be true in your life. The more connected you get to your brothers and sisters in Christ when you experience true biblical, what it calls fellowship, you appreciate the grace of God more than you did when you're by yourself. And so he calls, and then lastly in this passage, this part of the passage, he says, holy brothers and sisters with a heavenly calling. So now you have this calling placed on your life that God has said, hey, you're set aside and you're set apart for a specific purpose. And God wants you to go and live that purpose, to achieve that purpose. So we don't transform ourselves by going after that purpose. We go after that purpose because we've been transformed. Meaning, you don't do things for Jesus to get him to love you more. You realize how much he loves you, and then it causes you to do things. See, we live our calling in life out of the outpouring of an understanding of what he's done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Like, Lord, thank you. Because of what you've done for me, I'm going to go live this way. The other thing to understand is this. There are no holy unbelievers. This holiness that we've been given as a gift from Jesus is not shared with non-believers. They are in desperate need of that connection, both to Jesus and to other believers. You cannot have a holy unbeliever. So that is part of the calling to go to them and share this great news with them. He continues in the verse 1. You can see how slow we're going all morning, right? I'm kidding. We'll, we'll pick up the pace. 
Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's our word again, consider. So he's saying, hey, God's called you to do this, the big picture of what Jesus is doing, but let's pause for a moment, and I want you to consider. He's calling them, it's, consider in this context would be like meditating like a Christian. I want to focus on what God's called me to focus on. Focus on what he's teaching me in his word. It's, it's meditating. And Jesus being the center of Christianity is the perfect object for us to meditate on who he is, what he's done, his life, his ministry, for us to focus on him. Think about it this way. Every single person in life has what we call a worldview. And I want you to picture a worldview like this. If you put a pair of glasses on, okay, then everything that you see in life would come through the lens of the glasses. The glasses, the lenses, are your worldview. They're everything that you've come to believe about the the origin of the world, the problem with morality, uh, what's going on, what is my purpose in life. How you answer those questions, build what is called your worldview. And you will look at life, interpret all of your experiences, everything you go through in life, you will interpret it through the lens of your worldview, your understanding of how the world works. And so the author here is saying, consider, meditate on, ensure that the glasses that you're interpreting life through are Jesus. And then it says, he is, he's not simply the author and finisher of our faith then. So Jesus becomes the author and finisher of our thoughts. Like he should be what we are consumed with. More on that in a little bit. But he says, hey, consider Jesus as the apostle. That's a weird word to use when describing Jesus because we're so used to the 12 that Jesus sent. Apostle is a word that simply means one who is sent. And so Jesus was sent from the Father the same way that he sent the disciples or the apostles from him. So Jesus was sent from the Father on a mission with a purpose. So he's the apostle and the high priest. His mission was to become our high priest. He was the one sent to become the high priest, the one who would offer the sacrifice that would cover all sacrifices, the sacrifice that was once and for all, the one to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he continues in verse 2 describing this. He says this, And to that calling of being sent to become that high priest, he was faithful to him, to God, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so he says, Jesus was faithful to his calling, and then he throws what would seem kind of odd to us, he throws Moses in there and says, he was as faithful to his calling as Moses was to his calling. You've got to understand again, who was this written to? This was written to Jewish Christians, and they knew their Old Testament very well. They steeped themselves in the Old Testament. They understood everything about the Old Testament scriptures. And because of that understanding, that deep love for their scriptures, the Old Testament, they developed a great reverence for the major characters in the Old Testament, like Moses. Moses became this great figure in their thinking, who really influenced the way they saw the world. So think about that. They have this great reverence for Moses. And he comes in and says, Jesus is even better than Moses. Now Moses is the one that had led their people out of 400 years of slavery to Egypt in what's known as the Exodus. As a matter of fact, the Exodus becomes the theological framework for how people related to God in the Old Testament. God is the God who frees and redeems and releases from slavery. All that because of the work that Moses did. Then Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai and he meets with God and he comes down off of the mountain and his face is glowing and he has these interactions with God. He's the one that delivered the law to the people. The law that would ultimately tell them how they could reconnect to God. Moses' ministry was powerful and big and extremely influential. And the author of Hebrews is trying to remind them, let's consider Jesus, because if you'll really consider him, you'll know he's even better. He's even better than Moses. 
I'd say it this way, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is the legacy of Moses' ministry to the people of Israel. And he says, now, I want you to picture Moses and all the good that he did as a part of the house. He's a part of the meta-narrative, the big picture of what God's doing. He played an important role. He might have an even bigger bedroom than most. But Jesus isn't like Moses. He doesn't just get a room in the house. He's building the entire house. Moses is a part of the story. Jesus is the story. Moses was a part of the plan, but the whole plan pointed to Jesus. Moses' entire life pointed to Jesus, was all about Jesus. Because Moses, he was a part of the house, but Jesus was the builder of the house. And he says, hey, whenever you build a house, it's not the house, it's the one that builds the house, not the one that lives in it that gets the glory. Think of it like this, if you've watched Fixer Upper. How many of you remember the names of the people that moved into the homes on that show? How many of you can remember all the details of all the different houses that they built? But when I say the name Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know who they are. Why? Because they're the ones that went in and they found the house. They planned it out. They did all the, the demo day. And they go in and do demo day. And then they come in and they, they revise the plan and they build the house. And they're the ones that did all the work, so they're the ones that get all the credit. That's why you can't have somebody else step into that show when they were ready to step away from the show. You couldn't just go find two other people to step in and take over Fixer Upper. They realized they had a problem on their hands. Why? Because the glory was going to the one who built the home. In a spiritual sense, this is what the author is saying in Hebrews. It's not the house itself that should be glorified, but the one who is building the house that should be glorified. Now, I want you to remember this. He's writing this to individuals, but also to the collective body. So the application for this is going to hurt. All right, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So Moses was a servant, but Jesus was the son. The word used for servant is not the common word used in your New Testament. It, the word literally means it is faithful in rank to someone who is in authority over them. And so Moses was this servant who was faithful to the one who had authority over him, God. And he was faithful to that. He had this great life. But here's the thing you need to know about Moses and what he would want the, he would want the audience to know about Moses was what defined Moses' legacy was not the individual life that he lived, but the life that his life pointed to. Moses was great because his life made much of God. Jesus is great because he is God. Jesus is superior to Moses, and therefore the argument is made here in these first six verses to this audience that Jesus is superior to all of Judaism. Jesus, because he's the one that it all pointed to. He's the one that Moses was all about. He's the better Moses. And Moses knew it. Moses knew he was pointing his life to the coming Messiah. So you consider Jesus as more important than Moses because Jesus is the one building the house. Now, how does that apply to us as a church body and us as individuals? Well, the, the application is simple. That the collective grouping of brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters, the church, this collective body, this family is being built up by God and so should not boast in what they accomplish on their own. Should not. Everything we do as a church and everything we do as individual Christians should point to Jesus. I'd be so bold as to say this. It's not of God's kingdom when our lives point to us. When our lives point to us. When our accomplishments point to us. When we pursue building a brand as a church. Or if we highlight a certain thing that we do because it makes the news or because we want to create hype and excite people. 
when we compete to show people that we're better than one another, when we actually feel better when other people fail at something that we want to do well at, when we individually compete with our neighbors and mistreat people so that we can get the upper hand, when we pursue greed, when we pursue all of these other things. How about this? In a culture of selfies, galore, it is the easiest generation in the world to gloat and boast and have your confidence in yourself. We do it nonstop, all the time. And here's the thing, look, you might get some joy out of that. I get it. And not all pictures are evil, so don't be like, Rob hates pictures. No, like, the point is this. When your life and everything about your life points to you, that is your reward. And it's shallow, and it's empty, and it will not be fulfilling. The point of the text is this. Your life should point to the better legacy, Jesus. You as an individual, everything that you pursue, everything that you do should be filtered through the lens of your understanding of Jesus. It should be to glorify him, to make much of him, to make him famous in your life and the lives of the people around you. If you give your whole life to making sure that your life points to him, your life will be well lived. The problem is, it's not always easy to build a house. It's not always easy to work in this heart and in this life. C.S. Lewis describes it beautifully. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. So picture your life as an actual living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting all the drains right and stopping the leaks of the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed to be done. You knew what needed to change in your heart when Jesus became a part of your life. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking down the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense to you. Like, what on earth is he up to The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought he was making you into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, one that he intends to come and live in himself. You see, God is working in our lives. It's not always comfortable, but he is building something for his glory if we surrender to him. If we allow him individually in our lives to build everything around him, that means that we view forgiveness different than the world. We don't hold grudges. That means we view finances, and we view future plans, and we view parenting, and we view marriage, and we view commitment, and we view covenant. We view all these things through the lens of Jesus, not our own personal preferences and desires. Peter articulates the spiritual side of this building well in his letter, 1 Peter. In chapter 2, he says this, As you come to him... Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So this incredible Savior, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, the connectedness that we have, to offer spiritual sacrifices both individually and corporately as a church to God through Jesus Christ. God wants to build something in our lives, but it is not for our glory. So the question becomes, the hard question to ask is, individually and corporately as a church, body, family, together, how do we know that God is the one building? How how can I be secure in knowing that I am, in fact, letting God be the one who's building my life? How can we as a church know that we're on the right track to allowing God to build this place up? Two difficult questions that come out of the text in verse 6. He says, you'll know that you're God's house being built collectively and individually if you hold fast your confidence. So the first question is this, where is your confidence? Look, the Hebrew Christians, they endured difficulty. They were under threat of physical persecution. We don't know what that feels like. 
if we were sitting in a room like this with threat of soldiers coming in here and physically harming us because of our faith, they were under severe threat for following Jesus. And we know that they had to be encouraged to endure that persecution later on in the book of Hebrews. That's not our plight. Because of where we get to live, the blessing it is to live where we live, that's not what we're up against. So the question of where my confidence is is not in the safety and security of our wonderfully blessed place of living is not to say, I'm not scared to be persecuted. That's not, that doesn't, that's not it. Let's ask the question in the context of our situation, collectively as a church and individually, there's two areas that I think we really need to ask because they're the threats to our confidence. And the first is this, watch your wallet. Watch your wallet. You gotta watch where your money is spent. Here's the thing, collectively, we've got to pay attention and be on top of that as a body of believers. We collectively are called to tithe, and when we tithe, like, here, here's the thing that's hard. You're like, you come into a church, and you're like, I knew the preacher was going to talk about money. Here's the thing, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like the idea that I'm some preacher. And here's, here's the, the other part. Like, let's and really think about how do you say this. Like, remove the, the you from the, the giving, and it's we. Like, like, we. We're all on the same page here. Like, we're all together in this giving together to something this is not about you giving so that i can hey i need a jet and my family likes to fly first class and so we want this private jet and if you guys would that's heresy that should be condemned it's disgusting so when we give together as a church it's about like over 20 percent of our giving goes to global missions and other finances come here and they help right here in boone county and around this church and yes it pays some the salaries of the staff as we lead ministries out. But it is checks and balances, it's accountability, it's integrity. Our church is governed by a group of elders. And they watch over that. They have other people come in and advise. We're audited, we're checked. Everything, everything is held accountable to what the elders are leading. So when we give, we do it together. A couple years ago, we collectively as a church decided to do what we called the REACH Initiative. We said, God, our confidence is that you want us to improve this place for other people. And so those of you that are new here, when you walked into the building, this is not what it looked like two years ago. So the church, we collectively said we're going to give above and beyond, and we committed to doing that because we wanted to, like, hey, our confidence, Lord, is that you've called us to do this, and we did it together. Coming out of the REACH initiative, we have about $1.3 million in debt. You look at that, and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. Our church, our size, though, in two years, two and a half years, we've gone, we've already paid over $1 million toward the project specifically. So the Lord has blessed us. But collectively we say, where's our confidence, Lord? We want to wipe the debt out as quick as we can so we can keep going and serving and loving people. And this is about all of us collectively together. Individually, the hard part is like, where's my confidence when it comes to my money and giving? I'm going to be transparent with you. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I got hit with a bill that kind of startled me. So I'm sitting alone in my office one afternoon, and uh, it, it's the time that we always tithe, and we give online, and so we're getting ready to tithe. This is not how it works every time, but take, take it for what you want. We decide, hey, I'm gonna, we're going to tithe, and I look at the bank, and I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, man, it would be easier if we just waited one week, because the tithe, you know, what we normally give, if we waited one week, this would be a lot easier, so I don't know what should I do, and in the moment, the Holy Spirit was like, no, just give. Where's your confidence? Genuinely, that was a conviction I had, didn't tell anybody, didn't call anybody, didn't do anything. I just said, okay, oh, I just have to do this. This is going to be a crazy week, but all right, boom, and I gave. No kidding, 15 minutes later, my wife sends me a text. Hey, look what came in the mail. 
It's a gift from a close family friend for the exact amount of the tithe. That doesn't happen every time. There's been the negative side of that story that's happened too. Don't create a standard from that. But God has called us to test him in this. And just say, Lord, I trust you. Like here, like I just, I want to be a part of this. I want to be with my brothers and sisters as we together go and do this. And so you have to ask yourself that same question. The second thing is this. How do you spend your time? Not just your tithe, not just your giving, but how, what, your confidence when it comes to your time. Many of you, look, it's easy to come in here, sit, and, and get out. And I get it. There's sometimes you just have to do that. But there's always a place that would need your time. And are you willing to give that extra hour? I mean, there's all kinds of places. James, our facility manager, would love people to sign up to help with the coffee. You just, hey, Lord, I trust you. We can give. We can not just come and sit, but we will give of our time. We can come in and take a time slot and make some coffee. Others, we need help with greeting at the doors. We need help at the Welcome Center. Our children's ministry always needs volunteers to come in and love and lead kids. Your time is an indication of where your confidence is. And the Lord's given us opportunities to serve together as a church. All kinds of opportunities. Let me try this. This might backfire on me. It did not backfire in first service. You might not know her name, but how many of you, when you've walked in the doors, have been hugged by or greeted by Helen Parks? Anybody? Whoa, I don't even have to describe her. <laughs> like, hands up again. Look around the room. Tell me, tell me that the small things in life aren't important. Come on. This lady's impact's incredible. And God might call you to do the same. Last question is this, that we check ourselves with is this. What do you boast about? Because that's in verse 6. Where we place our confidence and what we boast about. And look, let me tell you, like Moses boasted about God and all that God was doing. The Apostle Paul listed out his accomplishments multiple times in his letters. And every time he'd say, I've done this and this and this and this and this. And it's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Everything I've ever done in my life is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And sadly, if I'm being honest, there are some weeks where I'd rather talk about the latest movie that I've seen than the Savior who has saved me. What is it that you talk most about? Because that is an absolute indicator as to where your hope really is. And it will tell you who it is that's building your life. We're going to spend the last few moments really honing in. Because we could say, I want my confidence and my boasting to be in Jesus. When we leave this place, I'm going to go do it. And I'd say, that's awesome. Get ready to go do it. But before you go, can we just consider the lilies for a few moments? Can we just pause as we take communion this morning? It's going to look a little bit different than it normally does for the expressed purpose of slowing down and just considering what God has done before we go out and live on mission for him. So in a few moments, I'm going to read a passage and then I'm going to pray, directing our attention. Coming out of that prayer, you're going to be asked to come in a moment and step, step up out of your seat and come out and get bread and a cup and Here's my encouragement to you. You can go and sit individually and take of communion. That's perfectly acceptable. But I want to encourage you, if you're comfortable, to huddle up with other people. Maybe I was able to take communion with my, with my kids, which, man, it was awesome in first service. I saw whole families huddled up and circled up together, serving one another and praying together. It was beautiful. And we want to see that in all of our services together as we take communion as a holy brothers and sisters, a holy priesthood. And so you gather up your family, gather up friends. If you see somebody, invite them to come in with you. And you're just going to pray. Somebody just say, I'll pray for us. And everybody else just stay quiet for a few moments and reflect on Jesus. And I'll pray for us. You might say, well, I'd rather just sit alone and reflect. That's perfectly okay, and you can do that too.
We're going to have a very intentional time where we slow down for a few moments and just really consider Jesus before we go and live for him. The text I want to guide our thoughts is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's what Jesus has done, but in verse 3, I love it. Here comes our word. He says this, consider him. Like, get excited about all that God's doing, but before you get going, he says, just consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that when you do go out after you've considered him, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray.